I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Today's episode is brought to you by PodPage. PodPage is the best service out there for easily and quickly creating your own podcast website. In fact, divingdeepedu.com was created using PodPage. It is super easy to use with nice customization and helpful features. Go to podpage.com to get started with a podcast website today. Use code DIVINGDEEP, all lowercase, to get your first month free or 50% off a premium membership. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Tony Wagner. Tony is currently a senior research fellow at the Learning Policy Institute. Prior to that, he held a variety of positions at Harvard for more than 20 years, including four years as an expert in residence at the Harvard Innovation Lab. Tony has written seven books, including three bestsellers. On top of that, Tony served as the strategic education advisor for the education documentary most likely to succeed, which if you haven't seen it, you should, and it's on Amazon Prime. Tony, thank you so much for joining me. You just got done a big home renovation project. How did it go? What did you learn? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Matt. That's a much longer conversation and probably not worth your your listeners' time at the moment, but the short version is it's fine and I'm fine. Well, that's a good place to be. Sometimes those uh, can go a little sideways. Tony, you've done uh, some wonderful work and needed work in education. Today, we're going to be talking about that, um, but we're going to be talking about it through the lens of your most recent book, Learning by Heart. Learning by Heart is a memoir. Uh, Why did you think it was important to write this book as a memoir? A couple of reasons, Matt. First of all, I had written six argument-based books about education, and I frankly didn't feel I had any new arguments to make, but I had stories to tell. And I thought my own school story, both as a student and then as a young teacher, might be illustrative and useful to a lot of people because I had so many failures and had to learn from them. And I hated school. And so I had to try to become the kind of teacher I wished I'd had uh, in the beginning of my teacher career. And so those were just some of the reasons that had influenced me to write the memoir. Hmm. And I really enjoyed uh, sitting down reading your memoir, and I really enjoy memoirs in general. Writing a memoir, though, isn't as easy as sitting down and just writing your personal story. There's a lot 
of development that goes into it. What were some memoirs that inspired you as you went through this writing process? So uh, Frank McCourt's memoirs, particularly uh, his memoir about teaching, was wonderful and delightful. It was so entertaining. Although, you know, many of his stories were not ones that I could necessarily relate to. He was pretty frustrated with some of his students, as I recall. Uh, and then Educated by Tara Westover was another kind of important memoir. Both memoirs were just so readable and had many education-related themes. And so those particularly interested me. But I read a slew of others. Jennifer Conway's uh, Road to uh, Correo and others that were just wonderful reads. Yeah. So you said you've written six other books that are more like argument-based, right? Dealing with an issue or a question. Um, how was the writing process for this this book similar, you know, maybe and different to the writing process for your other books? It was completely different, Matt. You know, I began, you know, as a teenager loving literature and wanting to actually be a novelist. And, uh, you know, my interest in creative writing persisted through uh, many of my, you know, formative years into my 40s, when I actually wrote three drafts of a novel in my first year of my doctoral program at Harvard, because I was so bored. So uh, the, the love of fiction uh, has never left me. The kind of fantasy that I was going to become a novelist, however, has fantasy, has kind of escaped finally. Uh, but what I wanted to do was try to use the tools of fiction writing in, in the memoir and, and, you know, dialogue and character development and storytelling and a narrative arc. So in many ways, writing a good memoir is very similar to uh, the skills you need to write a good novel, except you're telling your own story so you don't have to make it up. So it was really quite different. And yet I pulled many of the education themes that I've been exploring in, in a more formal and systematic ways uh, into the my own life story because they were relevant. Yeah, I really appreciated the the story arc in your book, the dialogue, the characters. I mean, you didn't just throw something out. You developed it and brought us into it and engaged us in the in the journey, um, you know, through your journey. Is there something you learned about yourself through the process of writing this memoir that you didn't fully recognize or understand prior uh, to embarking on this writing journey? I think that's a really good question. Uh, I think it's always uh, really helpful to be able to reflect back on a set of experiences and put them in context. I, you know, I, I knew that I didn't like school for a very long time, but I guess I hadn't fully realized the extent to which I had been stigmatized by the sense of failure. And that kind of enables me to really identify with so many other kids who don't fit in, who learn differently were labeled as failures. And then, you know, I made failures through my adult life. In fact, the, the book is more about my failures than my successes. So I think the other thing we continue to need to learn is how to reflect on our so-called failures. You know, all learning is trial and error. But if we label them as failures, you know, in some ways we, we've crippled ourselves. And so the challenge moved beyond what I call the F word and just talk about all learning is trial and error. Yeah, that's a really healthy way to embrace it. Sometimes it's hard to have a conversation with someone about a failure because people get defensive. They they put up the wall and they don't want to interact with that. Um, how have you gotten to a place where you've said, I can deal with my failures. I can call them a trial and error. It's part of our process. 
Well, again, I think it's coming to understand the negative influence of some teachers that I had and, and schooling in general, where we're all put on a bell curve on an extremely limited set of knowledge and skills. And the more you kind of broaden your lens to look at the full range of human capabilities, the more you realize uh, how artificial it is, the ways in which we're judged, and how crippling it is to constantly put kids on a bell curve and compare them. Uh, so that for me, being able to step back from that has taken time. Obviously, uh, you know, the importance of reading books like Angela Duckworth's and Carol Dweck's about grit and perseverance, understanding it's not about innate capabilities so much as it is about perseverance, grit, tenacity, and so on, helped a great deal. But it was also finally just reflecting on my own experience and realizing how there were key important things that I learned from each so-called failure that didn't in fact make them a failure. And when you look back on how do kids learn to talk, how to learn to walk, what if we said to kids, I'm sorry, you're never going to ride a bike because we know you're going to fall down and skin your knee. So-called failure is an inevitable part of all learning. Yeah. As, as I was reading the memoir, as I was reading your book, I had this uh, list going on next to it. I was writing down, okay, this is what Tony wants me to know from this book, right? I was sort of envisioning us having a conversation and I, I was taking notes down and, and my list got kind of long uh, because there was a lot of stuff that you told us in the book. There's a lot of pages. There's a lot of stories. As you think about it today, and this might be different tomorrow, this might be different in a different conversation, but as you think about that today, what would you really want me to know? What really would you want your reader to know about you, Tony Wagner? Oh, that's another tough one, Matt. You, know, <laughs> you ask hard questions. I, you know, I almost want to leave it to the reader for them to decide what they should know about me. I mean, the messages that I wanted to convey through my life experiences are clearer to me. You know, that teachers make a difference. I tell the story of my senior English teacher who was a, a brute, a nasty, mean man. And, uh, he, he, you know, I, 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 he pronounced me as a failure at the age of 17. And I thought that was a sentence on the rest of my life. And then six months later, I have an encounter with another teacher who's not even my formal classroom teacher, but who was just a wonderful human being and responded to my interest in wanting to learn to write. So I, the first thing for me is that in my life, teachers have mattered a great deal, both for better and for worse. And so it's, I guess part of it is how I struggled to be a different kind and a better kind of teacher. And now, in sense, a teacher of teachers as well. Is that nasty teacher you're talking about, Mole? That's the one. Not oh. to guess, is it? Man, Tony, I'll tell you, when I read your stories, right, yeah. I, I got angry. My heart beat a little faster. I was having flashbacks to my own experience. <laughs> and these teachers that were my moles, right, they were sort of coming into my mind. And I, and, and, and I was having this reaction. And, and I think one of my kids came in while I was reading some of these stories and I'm like, Daddy, what's wrong? <laughs> and oh, I was like, oh, no, oh nothing, you know. Um, yeah. And it was intense. And, and, and I was thinking about that and I was thinking about your experience and then um, – like, why do these sorts of teachers, these moles, um, elicit such an intense reaction years and years and years later, and they stay imprinted on us? Teachers should be trusted. And when, when you suddenly realize the teacher has not only violated the trust, but been a bully, 
you say, well, what's wrong with me that made the teacher do that? For years, I believed him, Matt. I thought it was true because if an adult made that pronouncement on me, somebody who's in a position of authority, well, then of course it must be true. And it took many years for me to really move beyond that. And when I made some significant screw-ups as an adult, you know, I was, as you know, a head of a school after a decade of teaching in English uh, and made some serious screw-ups. Screw and so that mantra of the, of the moles, Wagner, you're a screw-up, you're a screw-up, came right back to me. So I think those very early formative experiences with teachers, both for better and for worse, are deeply, deeply impactful in our learning. Yeah, it was powerful. Even the, even you end your book, and I think even on the last page, uh, his name is there, yeah. you know? And right. I was like, wow. Right. Like he was still there, you know, right. as your graduation, at the commencement, you're still there battling this trusted voice that was speaking yeah. these lies into your life. But he was also there for me, Matt, in the sense that I, it was a part of my coming to understand that we in education need to do a far better job of establishing professional standards and ensuring that our peers live by them. And, you know, no amount of formal teacher evaluations are necessarily going to get us there. It's going to be much more uh, team-based and peer-based supervision that I think needs to uh, sort of help us create a better, more trusted profession. Yeah, so how do we do that? I mean, you just sort of introduced it right there, but you're a teacher of teachers now, and how do we prevent these moles coming into the classroom any longer? Well, obviously, teacher preparation has a huge role to play, and I think teacher preparation in this country, as it is in most countries, is deeply broken because we're not really paying attention to who that person is as a human being. Whereas in Finland, by contrast, to even get into a school of education, you have to have already kind of proven yourself to a degree in terms of your human capabilities through volunteering and so on. But beyond that, teaching is one of the most isolated professions in modern work life. And isolation is the enemy of improvement. It is the enemy of innovation. One of the things that I've come to believe is that no one should work alone in education, that we all should work on in teams, that it is a team is a community of practice trying to understand and solve problems of practice that is the real engine of lasting change and continuous improvement in education. When you're in a team, you can't be invisible. You know, good teams have what I call reciprocal relational face-to-face -face accountability. If you're a part of a team and there's somebody on the team not pulling their weight because, you know, they're, they're not doing the work they need to with kids, you know, you call them on it because it's going to pull the whole team down. So I think that's an incredibly important element of what I would call a different kind of accountability. Yeah. Thinking about teams, would you be able to describe for us a, a team situation that you've seen, that you've been a part of that has worked well? At High Tech High, every class is team taught by pairs of teachers. Those pairs of teachers uh, regularly meet for professional development with their peers where they're presenting their plans for the following semester for critiquing and feedback. Now that's a team structure on top of a team structure, if you will. And 
you know, I think it's incredibly effective. In fact, the founder of the school, Larry Rosenstock, said you could take away all of the other innovations that he implemented, but that he deeply believed that that team-based team teaching and accountability was, in fact, absolutely foundational and essential for the school's success. And then, like, you know, you know, Google's done great research on teams and the importance of psychological uh, safety, the importance of diversity in teams. So there's, in corporate life and modern life, there's a, a lot of really interesting examples of team-based uh, work that is quite different than education. Yeah, I've seen the documentary and, and it's wonderful and it's energizing and it's exciting to watch that take place. So how do they do that? How do they have a team, right? A team teachers, but then those team teachers are within a larger team. Have you been able to be in that school and see how that takes place? I'm, I'm just a little bit curious. I've never personally seen something like that. Well, I've been there many times. First is that uh, the, the structure is completely different. All of the courses or classes are interdisciplinary. So to teach an interdisciplinary class successfully, you've got to have teachers working together. You can't, you know, teach a class that has both humanities and science and not have at least two teachers in the room. Secondly, you know, they, they, they put their money into the classroom. There were no varsity sports at High Tech High. Lots of intramural sports, tremendous number of extracurricular activities, huge arts program, but no varsity sports. Imagine the savings. We didn't plow so much money into so many of these varsity sports that are quite expensive. And instead, okay, we're going we're gonna to create structures where teachers can work together. Because many in the younger generation of teachers now really do want to work together. The older teachers think of themselves as craftsmen. They want to close that door and be left alone to do their thing. But I think that's less and less true today of people coming into the profession. Let's get back to your book a little bit more closely. A theme that I picked out from the book, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw a search for God and your quest for education sort of in a parallel path, you know, one going along with another. How do you see those two connected, your search yeah. for God and your quest for education? That's a, that's a fascinating question. I think what I wanted was, first of all, a sense of meaning and purpose in my life. And conventional religion hadn't given me that at all because it felt like there was so much hypocrisy all around me. You know, I grew up in, in a very conservative white community. And, you know, as I'm coming of age, I'm suddenly becoming really aware of the inequities and disparities and the ways in which some African-American families lived in extreme poverty just down the road from us. And yet that was never discussed in church, right? And then uh, I think also for me, trying to seek some kind of transcendence, which is a part of having a purpose and meaning in life, but working on something that's, or believing in something that is larger than myself has always been a search for me. And it's in part what led me to education, because I think education is a way to serve and is a way to connect to a larger meaning and purpose in life. You know, we were bashing on Mole a little bit, but you did have some good teachers as well. You had some teachers like Mr. Edwards. Uh, he was one of them. Um, what were some qualities that made a good teacher in your own life or maybe as you're going from all of these different schools around the country and the world? What are some good qualities that, that make a good teacher? 
firm but caring comes to mind immediately. The idea that a teacher needs to have standards, but needs to know who you are and where you are as an individual without judgment. Discernment, yes, but that's not quite the same thing as judgment. You know, the mole judged me. Mr. Edwards worked to know me. And I think that's the difference. He personalized my learning experience and learning to, to write with him. And that those were things that carried on into how I tried, to, the teacher I tried to become and how I actually taught writing in ways that were very, very different and yet tremendously influenced by Mr. Edwards. How do you straddle that line, getting to know and, and trying to be helpful, trying to guide, but not judging? How, how does one not go to that other side of the line and start judging and, and harshly critiquing uh, his pupils? Well, I think you have to separate your critique of a student's work from the student. And very often teachers don't make that distinction clearly enough. And so you have to, you know, it's the same way when you critique a teacher, uh, you know, you can do a formal evaluation and the teacher thinks his whole life is being evaluated. Whereas you say, let's talk about your lesson and are there ways in which the lesson might be improved? That's a little bit of distance, right? Oh, now you're talking about my lesson and every teacher in the world knows he or she has never taught a perfect lesson. So there's an openness to, to being able to hear criticism then in a different way. And the same with the student. If you start with a student being able to self-critique, self-evaluate. And in fact, you know, I would regularly have students come to me because I didn't put grades on papers. I put lots of comments. And a student would say, well, what's my grade? And I would turn the question back and I would say, well, what grade do you think you should get? And almost invariably they knew. They didn't have to have me tell them. So again, though, it's the distinction between my work and who I am as a human being and allowing me to be the first critic of my own work. You mentioned uh, Mr. Edwards sort of fostering this love of writing uh, within you. You said in your book, I spent more time on these assignments than all my other assignments combined. And that got me thinking, do you think it was the teacher, Mr. Edwards, do you think it was the topic writing? Because that's obviously you love to write. You're still writing these uh, wonderful books or a combination. Can you elaborate a little bit on that dynamic? Well, it was both. I mean, I already had a keen interest in writing which led me to go to him, even though he wasn't my teacher, and ask if he would essentially give me a tutorial in creative writing. Uh, but then it was his methodology. You know, he would uh, essentially invite me to explore a genre, meaning uh, a childhood story, a dialogue, a monologue, an amusing story. He would never give me a topic, but rather... A, a form of writing to experiment with. And then I'd come back and he was very careful to always start with something he could praise. Might be just a one word choice or, you know, a, a nice uh, metaphor or something. But he would always start with praising one thing and then he would all, always make a, just a couple of suggestions for how to improve next time. Never more than that. He never overwhelmed me with criticism. And by starting with something that he could praise, 
it gave me sort of a foundation of confidence to build on. And those are exactly the ways in which I, I of course, tried to approach teaching writing many years later. Keeping with writing, one of the writing tools that comes up throughout your book was journaling. You have used journaling throughout your educational journey. And even at the end of your book, you talk about the power of journaling as an important tool for changing teacher development. Why is journaling such an important tool for our learning? It enables us to step back and to reflect, Matt. I think one of the many tragedies of modern life is we have no time to reflect. We're too crazy busy. And so to reflect on a mistake I made, to reflect on a lesson that kind of screwed up, uh, to reflect on an individual student and what might be going on with him or her, I use journaling for all of that. Or sometimes to explore a bigger theme that might lead from an insight into something I had done uh, in a classroom or in the way a student had learn something. So it's a way to tease out both lessons learned from confusion, from questions, from mistake, as well as lessons sometimes learned from an insight and to build on those. So my journaling became in time my articles, which as you know, became in time um, my books. Yeah. And as I was uh, reading about your journaling and reflecting on that, it got me excited to maybe journal, but here's the problem. I haven't really had a good journaling experience in the past. I've, I've tried journaling, right? I've gotten to the end of a journal. I've looked at it and thought, you know, what do I want to do with this? And, and I don't think I ever want to read it again. I don't think anyone else will. So I just kind of throw it away, throw my journal away, and then lose momentum. What would you say to someone like me or a listener that's, been, that's had a tough time uh, getting traction with journaling as a tool? Two or three things, Matt. I guess asking yourself, what do you want to do with this is the wrong question. Um, that's not the point at all. I almost never went back and reread my journals until I started writing my memoir. I had no reason to. The journaling was a complete act unto itself. It, it served no purpose other than to give me time and, and space and a discipline to reflect. And that was, it, that was enough. Uh, you know, out of it sometimes, many years later, came seeds for articles. But that wasn't the intention. That wasn't how I started. Uh, it was really simply an effort to be able to reflect on what I'm learning as an as a educator. The other thing is that I never started cold. As you may remember, I used to um, I tell the story of having always kept a three-by-five card in my pocket through the week. And as I would be racing through the week, you know, a question would come to mind or, you know, I, I'd write down a, a one or two words to remind me of something that puzzled me in a class or something I'd kind of screwed up and wanted to think about and try to understand or something a student had said. And so every Saturday morning, I would sit down and take those three by five cards out of my pocket and write for an hour or maybe two. And so that's another key element. You know, don't, think you got to write every day. Don't think you got a journal about what you had for breakfast. Uh, you know, um, make it make it something that is a discipline. So I never had to think about how I was going to spend my Saturday morning. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And that discipline continued to serve me well as I started to write articles and books. On the one hand, that that discipline, that regularity is important. But on the other hand, 
you know, don't push it too hard and have, have in advance a few things you want to at least explore. So you don't have to start from scratch with a totally blank sheet of paper in front of you. Why is journaling um, or the process of journaling, let's say, more beneficial than just having a quiet space and thinking about something in your mental space as apart from from writing it on the paper? You know, I'm all, in many ways an intuitive learner. And I, I only fully know or understand something deeply once I've written about it. And that's what journaling helped me to do. Make sense of things. Make meaning of things. In ways, and I was also meditating at the time, and it, it helped in ways that meditation did not. Throughout the book, you spoke about many things you learned from Piaget. Uh, one of the takeaways was highlighting mature play. Can you describe mature play and what that might look like in schools? The whole idea is that play is the work of an infant or a young child. That it's in, in play, they make connections, make discoveries. But in creating innovators, what I learned through interviewing young adults who were all in some ways creative problem solvers, in some ways young innovators, was kind of a developmental arc where we move from play to interests, which may become passions, and passions morph and evolve to be, perhaps become a sense of purpose. So play to passion to purpose and that purpose is a kind of adult play. You know, we're talking right now, for me, this is a form of adult play, kind of drawing ideas out on one another, uh, struggling with some questions together. And so I think the work of, of anyone uh, who kind of takes their work seriously, uh, whether they're an artist or, you know, a teacher, it doesn't matter, uh, they're it becomes a form of, a, of an expression of adult play, disciplined play. And discipline is a key word here. The play of a child is not disciplined. The, the play of an adult becomes disciplined through time. How have you seen this take place, this mature play within, you know, innovations that happen in school? I mean, me personally, I haven't seen it a whole lot. So I would like to be inspired a little bit from maybe something you've seen. Well, if you look at Most Likely to Succeed, the, the film, you really see teachers who love their craft and who are free to develop their craft and who rely on one another's help to improve their craft. Those are three missing things in our schools today. Majority of teachers don't necessarily love their craft because it's been so distorted and perverted by our accountability systems. There's no fun to teaching to a test, especially if it's a very bad test. And so how do, you, how do you love your craft and want to perfect your craft when your craft is being judged by a set of artificial accountability measures that mean absolutely nothing? It's meaningless. It's purposeless. It robs teaching of its own dignity and value. And then we've also talked about the fact that, you know, in, in addition to all of that, teachers aren't a part of a community of practice. They don't have anywhere to go where they can have somebody critique their lessons or give them feedback on their lesson plans for the future. So I think all of that is a part of, of disciplined play. Disciplined play, I think, almost invariably connects you to a larger community, whether you're an artist or a musician or somebody working in the intellectual domain or a craftsman. You know, you're a part of a, of a larger community and you identify with that. 
and you do the work for motivations that are often intrinsic, not extrinsic. So many teachers today go to school to collect a, a check because they have to, because they have no other choice. And they'd really rather be doing something else. And I'm not blaming teachers. I think the fault is the system. We're driving great teachers out of the profession every single day. So that's no form of, dis of adult play, of discipline play. That's a form of drudgery, of slavery. Throughout your educational journey, it seemed to me that interest and curiosity drove much of your learning. And when interest and curiosity were not there, were not driving your learning, it didn't always end well, you know, move to a different school or, or try something else out. How important is it for interest and curiosity to drive our learning? I think it's absolutely crucial, Matt. Uh, you know, we are born curious, creative, imaginative. That's human DNA. The average five-year-old asks 100 questions a day, and almost every child that age thinks of himself or herself as an artist. And I know this because I have four grandchildren, reminding me both every single day. Uh, but by the time a child gets to be six or seven and they're in school, things begin to change. The longer kids are in school, the fewer opportunities they have to ask their own questions, and fewer and fewer of them think of themselves as artistic or creative in any form. School takes those things from us. I think it's arguably the, one of the most damaging things about modern schooling. It thwarts and, and in many ways kills curiosity. Curiosity is the wellspring of learning, is the wellspring of creativity and innovation. And so what I had to do was quit a bunch of schools, uh, you know, to finally keep that curiosity alive. I'd always loved learning informally. I'd always loved to read. So to some extent, I had kindled those own fires within my, myself, but I had to get out of schooling situations that were trying to kill it. So as you know, I dropped out of high school once. I dropped out of two different colleges and finally found a small experimental college where I could really pursue my own interests and develop my own uh, burgeoning capabilities as a writer and as a thinker. And in fact, I, I, it's entirely possible that if I had not found that college, I would never have completed college and I wouldn't be where I am now at all. That college saved me. So how do we, how do we foster curiosity, right, within schools? How do we foster that um, and elevate it? Uh, so I guess I'm asking sort of a two-part how and maybe... Or maybe you could just say uh, a time that you have seen this done in a more traditional uh, school. Well, I think that there are a lot of things that many people are doing in schools now. And if you go to Ted Dintersmith's new website, What School Could Be, there are a lot, a lot of really good short videos about genius hours and projects and so on and that begin with curiosity, begin with questions. I think first and foremost, we create time and space for student questions. It sounds simple, but if a teacher's talking so much of the time because they got feel I have so much stuff to cover, there's no time for student questions. Whereas if, as I propose, you invite students to keep a question journal where they write down questions that occur to them, concerns that they have, whether it's in response to the material that they're reading about or learning, or in the, in the largest sphere of life, uh, as what happened so often with many young people this summer, 
when they heard about George Floyd and so many other things. They had lots and lots of questions. And so it begins by legitimating students' questions and making time for them not only to ask them, but then to answer them. So it's creating a little space at the end of the semester or at the end of the week where students can you know, come back with a question that most interests them or a concern that they have, and the teacher creates that time and space for that student to really explore those questions and come back and, and present to the class what was the question and what did he or she learn. Yeah, thanks for sharing that example. That's a, that's a wonderful example that our listeners can take and sort of apply into their classroom. We've also talked about the need for discipline, right? So we have on one side, I'm thinking, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing curiosity on one side, discipline on the other. A lot of times we look at them as opposing forces. How do we reconcile the tension between those two and have them together have disciplined curiosity? How do we do that? That's a great question. I think the first is to recognize discipline and concentration are muscles that can and must be developed. And so if a student comes back, sort of having sort of tried to research a question, but comes back with kind of pretty thin work, or, you know, they did an internet search and didn't even know how to evaluate what they learned, you say, well, you know, I don't think that's your best work. Why don't you try again? And here are a couple of things you might try differently this time. So you, 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 there's a kind of a dynamic of going from curiosity to working hard at something and maybe realizing it, it fell short to sort of going back to what originally kind of motivated you and trying again. That's one of the things that I, I explore in the latter part of the book, particularly was, you know, was my struggle to develop an internal discipline and all of the ways in which I saw progressive education going off the rails in the 1960s, where adults were indulgent. Adults didn't have standards. Adults either tried to impose discipline harshly and externally or gave it up, didn't think it was important at all. And so neither approach works. I think it really has to begin with understanding that discipline uh, is essential for doing any kind of serious work, but that it has to be developed over time. We've talked about, um, you know, the many different schools that you've attended uh, for one reason or another. And as I've thought about that, I was just wondering if you would be able to speak for a moment to a listener who's dealing with a similar situation. They're bouncing around from school to school. They're disinterested. They're disengaged. They feel like an outsider. The list goes on and on. What's your advice to someone who's going through, or maybe they went through a similar schooling situation as you? What would you want to say to them? Well, you know, I've had so many emails from people who read my memoir and say, I had the same experience. You know, I felt like I didn't belong in school. Or I felt like my teachers were judging me or that I wasn't learning the way I was supposed to. And so the first thing to understand is that for someone like that, you're not alone. There are many, many more people out there than you may think there are who've had similar experiences. So realizing that one is not alone, one is not suffering alone, I think is The second is to be able to step back and understand that this is the problem with schooling today. It's institutionalized, it's an assembly line, it's a one-size-fits-all model, and if you don't fit, you don't go. 
And so then the next thing I think is to continue to encourage, and I, I dealt with a lot of kids who were in school dropouts when I, my first five years of teaching in a public school within a school for at-risk kids. And what I kept trying to do is kept trying to understand, well, what is their interest in learning? What is that spark that I can nurture and blow on? And I would say the same thing to an individual. Once you step back from school, you have to continue to ask yourself, well, what is it that I do want to learn? What is it that I am curious about? And where and when and how can I make even a small amount of, my, of space in my week to do those things, to further my own learning in spite of school? I want to wind down uh, this conversation with something that you brought up at the beginning of your book. Uh, a camp experience at Mowgli's played a big role in your childhood. You wrote, something made me feel like I belonged at Mowgli's, something I never felt at school. What did Mowgli's do to make you feel like you belonged? Well, it was interesting. In many ways, I didn't belong. Um, you know, we all wore uniforms. It was kind of a scouting camp, all boys, uh, all male counselors. And, you know, I didn't like the competitive sports uh, very much that were kind of woven into camp life. But on the other hand, there were so many opportunities to explore interests and to become potentially good at something. It was a much kind of richer, more colorful, broader palette of learning opportunities than school ever offered. And it wasn't so much about book learning. You know, I spent one entire summer studying with a Cherokee Indian and learning um, Native American dances and culture and making my own costume. My God. What an incredible opportunity. I mean, I was hungry for something different. I spent two more summers uh, working one-on-one -on -one with this very elderly gentleman who was an expert in axemanship. And I wanted to earn my ribbon or my merit badge, if you will, in axemanship. So over time, I learned uh, to develop real expertise through trial and error. You know, <laughs> he never gave me a multiple choice test on the parts of an axe taught me how to sharpen an axe correctly and make sure that it was good and sharp before I went out into the woods with him and then taught me how to carry it properly. And then when the tree that I felled got hung up in the branches of another tree, he never marked me down with a C minus, you know, he said, well, let's stop and think about this. What went wrong here? And what would you do differently next time? So it was a different model of learning and a far broader set of opportunities for learning that the camp gave me that I had not had in other parts of my life. How could something like the Axe example that you provided, how could something like that be replicated in school? How could schools learn from something like that and put that into practice within a school building? Well, that gets exactly to the work I'm doing now. Uh, I'm on the board of something called the Mastery Transcript Consortium, which is a consortium of high schools working to develop a completely different kind of high school transcript based on mastery rather than test scores or grade point averages or even Carnegie units. It's essentially a collection of merit badges, some required, some elective, that comprise the transcript that gets sent to colleges or employers. And when you click on a particular merit badge, if you will, you go straight into the student's digital portfolio where you see a body of work that enabled them to gradually show mastery. And so I think a mastery-based education system, which is what Mowgli 
really modeled and showed me is in fact the future of education. It is the only way to solve problems of equity. You work in inner city schools, you see this all the time. Kids start kindergarten, first grade, one, two, three years behind their middle-class peers because they didn't get to go on field trips in the summer. They didn't have a parent who had the time to read to them. So how do you expect those kids to catch up to their peers in 10 or 12 years? It's impossible, especially without additional help or support. Yet if you create a mastery-based system, like getting a driver's license, you know, you don't, you don't get kind of thrown out of the driving school because you failed your driving test the first time. It's a mastery-based system. It isn't even failure. It's like, okay, you didn't make it this time. You don't get your license. So you have to do it again. And maybe you have to study some more or try harder. So in other words, instead of time being the determining factor in what kids learn, it's mastery, it's proficiency, it's competence, as measured by a body of work, never an individual test. And that's what I first experienced at Mowgli that made a critical difference that I want now every student to experience in school. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Mike Dunn and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's a great application. And thanks for the work that, that you're doing with that. Tony, what a pleasure talking with you today. What a wonderful book you have written. I have a bunch more questions. I actually do. Um, but I'm going to practice a little self-control here, maybe uh, to bring you on in the future again. As we get to the end of our conversation, who do you want to give a shout out to? Well, I mentioned the Mastery Transcript Consortium, mastery.org. I think it's an incredible group of people working towards a, a potentially revolutionary change in high school. College admissions dictates the high school curriculum. And we have kind of a break in the cosmic egg this year when so many colleges are going test optional and many will stay test optional. The idea for a completely different kind of transcript is an idea whose time has come. And then shout out to the work of Ted Dintersmith, who's been a colleague and a collaborator since we made the film together. We started working together in probably 2012 or 13. And now we're, uh, you know, we're working together on a variety of projects and potentially a new podcast series that we might host together. So Ted Dintersmith and his work at whatschoolcouldbe.org would be another shout out. Finally, to betterworlded.edu, betterworlded, um, and the work of Abby Nangia, who's made these wonderful wordless videos that introduce younger kids to a whole different universe of human experiences that make them curious and more empathetic and have reasons to learn literacy and math skills based on these wonderful videos. Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? I come back, I think, to what I think is the real engine of continuous improvement in education, and that is communities of practice working to understand and solve problems of practice. All the questions you've asked today about learning, about curiosity, about discipline, 
are critical. Why, why should individual teachers struggle with these questions all by themselves when they're so central to our profession? So I guess I'd end with a little bit of advice. Buddy up. Maybe you can't be a part of a community of practice, but a PLC meeting once a week for an hour is not enough. Find a buddy or two, peers with whom you can share ideas, whom, who maybe in time can come visit your classes and critique lessons and for whom you can do the same. Maybe you can read some things together, but isolation is really the enemy of both improvement and innovation. And we need to overcome our isolation as educators. Thank you, Tony. What a blast. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time sharing your experiences and helping us dive deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning into Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, and post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. 